Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. In today's special episode, we sat down with Ross Kennedy, founder of Fortis Analysis. He touches on the recent report by the USCC titled China's Interest in U.S. Agriculture, Augmenting Food Security Through Investment Abroad. What does this mean, not just for U.S. agriculture, but also national security? Let's dive in. Ross, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to have you back on the show. Well, thank you, Tiffany. I appreciate it. So the USCC recently put out a report on how kind of China has infiltrated the U.S. agriculture and also stolen a lot of seeds. So to begin, how significant is this report? Uh, it's an enormous issue. It does have a very serious financial, economic, and national security impact uh, on American citizens and on the country. And, you know, it's good that to see a, a body like the USCC really taking this on and highlighting this as an issue that is, is an enormous step forward in awareness for, for Congress and for the public. And Ross, one area seems to be the issue of genetically modified food. So on one hand, it helps prevent pests taking over and such, but it also seems to open up vulnerabilities. So going forward, how would that balance play out? Yeah, so the issue of genetically modified organisms, um, the, the interesting thing about it is, is you're talking essentially about little biological computers. And with the way seed technology works is, is you have the parent strains, the male and female strains, the female strain is the more important one, the, what they call a mother strain. And so if you can get a hold of the, the original uh, seed itself, the genetic code is in that germplasm of that seed. And you're able to break that down and begin to, to essentially reverse engineer uh, the technological processes that have been done to modify the DNA of that seed. And when you modify the DNA of that seed, they're doing it for very specific things. Uh, they're, you know, like you said, they're they're treating it for resistance to corn borer or resistance to rootworm or resistance to glyphosate or what, you know, Roundup was its brand name before it became generic. And that allows farmers to be able to uh, cultivate using a mix of uh, seeding rate, mix of chemicals, a mix of fertilizers and, and pesticides and all these other things to help control uh, as much as they can the variability that comes from pest, uh, from, from lack of rain or too much rain, lack of fertility, uh, and be able to produce a crop reliably on a year-in and year-out basis. So if you're able to, you know, quote-unquote, crack the code of a genetically modified organism, then you would be able to steal hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars of intellectual property that a company like a Bayer uh, or Syngenta prior to being sold to a Chinese conglomerate uh, you know, in, in recent years. If you could do that, you're, you're lifting the, the, the secrets to life of that corn or that soybean and giving yourself an enormous step ahead in terms of time and cost advantage on feeding your own population. So most people don't realize that you could steal some kernels of corn or, you know, a few soybeans and, and you know, perpetrate a multi-billion dollar uh, industrial espionage campaign. But that's exactly what, what has happened. And, uh, and that's just one way of many in, in which that threat just continues to be something that a lot of people do worry about behind the scenes. And Ross, how widespread is this? Who's behind these seeds? And on the flip side, what is China trying to get out of it by stealing them? Well, in the U.S., we only have a few. Um, you know, globally, it's called the Big Six. And the Big Six is really about the Big Four because a couple are Big Three even because a couple of these companies have merged like Bayer and Monsanto, Dow and DuPont have merged their agriculture and, and chemical operations. So all the R&D, of course, has merged with it. 
China does now uh, own Syngenta, which was a Swiss company, has a very large U.S. footprint uh, out in the Research Triangle of North Carolina. Uh, but we're really down to three or four of these big companies. Those big companies are the ones that do the billion-dollar genetic research uh, and really devise and, and develop the ability. But then what they do is they sell uh, they sell that germplasm, they sell their seed strains to other companies that license that technology from them. They license the seed genetics and they mix it up with their own to produce maybe their own proprietary hybrids uh, of, say, corn. Uh, but still, the 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 mother strain or that female strain that that possesses all of the traits uh, of that particular plant or that particular technology that's been modified into that plant, um, then you would need to get access to a seed plot or something that's run by one of those companies. So, uh, a very very small uh, group of companies at the top that control a, a great deal of the food production of this country from a grains and oilseed side, and uh, so being able to uh, you know, intercept technology from one of them or uh, be able to get access to some of that in, in a way that they didn't even know it. Uh, now you're talking about a, a 1.4 billion uh, mouth to feed market in a place like China that used to have to buy uh, American and European genetic technology. Uh, and now they have the means to do their own and race ahead and provide that to the rest of the world uh, and undermine U.S. efforts in that way as well. So uh, it becomes a lot more complicated. Uh, when you've only got just a couple of companies that really control all of this and, and you really only need to, uh, you know, penetrate or create problems with one. And Ross, the USCC report notes that in 2020, the U.S. exported $1.62 billion worth of seeds. And so what would be the consequences of China's theft? So China has a very, I think as most people who really follow the country and the geopolitics around China know, it's, it has a very peculiar relationship with food security. Uh, it is an enormous emphasis in that country. It always has been. Uh, I don't think anybody forgets the famines, uh, you know, of, of the early, you know, the mid and, and mid to late part of the 20th century. And so in that country, possessing the means to increase their own domestic food security is job number one. Uh, and, and lying, stealing, bartering, whatever it takes to get that technology, uh, China has proven willing to do. But it also enables them as they, even as they develop that technology for their domestic market, it allows them to go to other places like Africa, for example, where the, the access to and the means uh, of growing more reliable, more robust, uh, more modern type crops and utilizing more modern cropping methods would go a long ways towards helping lift Africa out of poverty in a lot of places where they've got great farmland, very, very hardworking people, but they don't have access to a lot of the modern technology because fundamentally they don't have access to a lot of the seed technology. So for China to steal it from the U.S., develop indigenous versions of their own, and then export some of that to Africa uh, in the same way they would export construction technology for Belt and Road, you could also do Belt and Road with uh, food and with energy. And it's a massive diplomatic lever in a lot of places where China could come in and say, hey, we can give the farm equipment, the methods, the machinery, and this very expensive intellectual property. We can provide this all to you to lift yourselves up out of uh, food issues or food poverty, uh, but we want access to these critical minerals or we want to build a military base on your shoreline or whatever it may be. Uh, it's a very powerful lever, and it's a more powerful lever in you know, version of the way the U.S. says, hey, we'll, we'll give you some bags of wheat or some bags of rice to help feed yourselves. This is China saying, we're not going to give you a fish. We're going to teach you to fish, but we want something very valuable in return. And so that is one way in which internationally theft of American 
agriculture intellectual property it has a direct line to undermining American diplomatic and national security efforts worldwide. And Ross, given all these different parameters, say national security and even now the diplomacy risks, what can the U.S. do to really prevent China's theft? Step number one is to get a lot, uh, a lot more granular and a lot more accurate with the record keeping around land ownership in the U.S. Uh, there's a lot of reports out there, particularly over the last three or four years, where the, the only mechanism we really have in the U.S. at the federal level to track uh, foreign ownership of agricultural land is AFIDA, A-F-I-D-A. It's a law that was passed in the 70s. And you fill out a form. It's a two- or three-page form called an FSA-153, and it's a disclosure of – but it's – not really a, a legally protected disclosure where if you lie on it, you get in trouble. Uh, you can say whatever you want uh, and say, hey, we purchased this amount of land for this value. Uh, and, and here's the, the specific acres uh, by geographic coordinates. But not only can you obfuscate or just refuse to file it, which there's really not a penalty for, you can, you're can. you also now seeing very uh, opaque networks of uh, entities involved that don't have the same disclosure. So if I'm a Chinese uh, entity that wants to own a thousand acres in, in Illinois, it would be very easy for me to set up a company that's domiciled in Hong Kong, have that company in Hong Kong be connected at arm's length in some way to uh, an entity in the British Virgin Islands uh, or, or you know maybe the Bahamas. And then that entity goes and takes uh, you know, a position in a joint venture in the U.S. with another institution, and then that joint venture sets up another entity, and then that goes and buys the land. And so you have this vast web of very complex uh, entities and transactions involved here that are not accurate at the federal level uh, and, and require an unbelievable amount of due diligence just to dig into a single land deal, you know, somewhere in Wyoming or somewhere in Iowa or somewhere in North Dakota to be able to figure out what the real genuine ultimate beneficiary or beneficial interest and what that country of origin is. So step one, make that process a lot more, A, mandatory, B, hook some teeth to it, uh, to where if you lie or you refuse to disclose, you're punished for it. Uh, and C, certainly make it publicly available uh, as open source data, who owns what acre at the acre level everywhere in the US. Number two would be to, in my view, uh, connect sanctions-related activity to land ownership. I'm not a huge advocate for uh, foreign entities being able to own U.S. land at scale. If they want to own 50 acres or 100 acres to put a plant, that's fine. Uh, but what, when we're talking about some countries have hundreds of thousands or millions of acres uh, of property under foreign national control in the U.S., I don't think this is something we should do. We definitely need to take a, a complete holistic review uh, across the whole of government of what is the current status of foreign land ownership in the U.S., but also what is that land being used for? Who is the ultimate beneficiary of it? And what deals do we need to unwind immediately bring under CFIUS review, immediately bring under the review of the various agencies that have jurisdiction and understand and, and really, um, I think, begin to mitigate the potential economic and national security risks associated with uh, opaque record keeping and foreign ownership of our land in the U.S. This is an enormous problem. It's not one that's going away. And it's certainly one that the U.S. government has resources available to do more with, and they should be doing more with it. Ross, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to have you on the show.
Thank you, Tiffany. That was Ross Kennedy, founder of Fortis Analysis. And joining us after the break, Richard Bitzinger, independent international security analyst. He touches on the changes in the Indo-Pacific region and more in just a minute here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Joining us now, Richard Bitzinger, independent international security analyst. He touches on the changes in the Indo-Pacific region, if Japan is moving away from its post-World War II pacifism, and more. Let's dive in. Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. So right now, the Indo-Pacific region is kind of back in the spotlight, right? President Biden was just in Tokyo for the Quad Summit alongside India and Australia's prime ministers. And on the Chinese side, the Chinese foreign minister paid a visit kind of to all these Pacific islands, trying to get them, you know, to join a security and economic deal, as you wrote recently, actually. And so that enticement failed, as you know, in your article. But Richard, what does this mean in terms of that region? Well, I mean, uh, of course, all eyes right now are on Ukraine, and, and well, they should be. But, uh, you know, the Indo-Pacific is still probably where the future of, I guess you'd say, superpower uh, great games are going on and probably will continue to be. And just because the Chinese had a bit of a setback uh, in this recent round of trying to sort of peel off a lot of these uh, Pacific Island nations doesn't mean that, one, they aren't going to keep trying, and two, that they aren't going to have successes. Uh, they've actually in the past um, had little successes. Uh, they've signed some agreements years ago with Kiribati. They, of course, have a major agreement now with the, the Solomons. And, uh, you know, since this is, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, the Chinese uh, backyard or increasingly where they want to be, I mean, they're not going to just simply go away. They're going to lick their wounds and, and come back again. And so on the note of the Ukraine, Russia's invasion and war in Ukraine right now, it seems some countries in the Indo-Pacific area are taking note. So Japan, for instance, has taken a much stronger stance in terms of, say, boosting their military spending and activity in the region. So do you see Japan kind of moving away from its post-World War II pacifism? Well, yeah, and it's been doing this for decades, really. It's just that things move very slowly there, and they always try to fly under the radar, so to speak, with a lot of their changes. You know, they loosened a lot of their restrictions on uh, collective self-defense, on the bilateral relations with the United States in terms of security, and also, you know, expanding their security networks through things like the Quad um, so gradually they they have done this, and of course um, it's it's sort of been prompted a lot by the fact that China just more and more appears to people as an aggressive military threat that really can't be ignored. So in a sense, uh, what Japan is kind of doing is sort of a natural, uh, gradual, but I think evolutionary progression. And, and what we will probably see in the next five years is certainly more of that. The most important thing is, I think, that we have to look for in, with terms of uh, 
uh, Japan is how much do they go over that uh, self-imposed 1% of GDP limitation they put on defense spending and what kind of so-called uh, offensive or really more kind of war fighting uh, systems that they develop. The most important lately, of course, is creating uh, fixed-wing aircraft carriers out of those large helicopter carriers that they have. Are they going to build more? Are they going to expand that network? And Richard, on that note, a Japanese newspaper recently noted that Japan this summer is set to send a defense minister to Taiwan. And they've done this in the past, but it was always a retired official, whereas this one is a current one. So how do you see this kind of playing out in terms of China? Because in the past, they would send retired ones to not provoke the Chinese regime. So is something changing? What's your take? Well, I think there's a feeling that at the very least you want to send stronger messages to China. And, of course, um, uh, Japanese-Taiwanese uh, relations have always been pretty good, pretty tight. Uh, and um, I think uh, Japan would like to improve those. And, of course, in that regards, I think they do this with the U.S.'s blessing. And the United States, I think, is also getting closer to Taiwan. And, uh, you know, some of, the, some of the statements that uh, President Biden has made, by the way. And all this, again, is essentially prompted uh, on the part of uh, Tokyo and Washington uh, by the increased sort of unpredictability and bellicosity of uh, the Chinese and this idea that they need to put out more uh, unmistakable markers. And so in a sense, I'm not surprised that Japan is starting to do this. It's a calculated risk, but I think they feel that it's a necessary one to take. So in terms of Taiwan, some of Japan's islands are only a few hundred miles away. So if Beijing were to go and invade Taiwan, how would Japan get involved or would Japan get involved? Well, that's a tough question. Um, at this point, uh, if, if the Chinese were to also uh, attack some of those islands, uh, if they decide at the same time that they were going to invade Taiwan, which of course is a long shot, I think still, uh, would they also try to settle the problem with the Senkaku Dayu Islands? You know, these ideas to, you know, kill two birds with one stone. Uh, that would naturally drag the, uh, the Japanese into the conflict. Uh, and of course, uh, the other thing is, is that the Japanese might simply look at a pro-China Taiwan that is a, a, a Taiwan occupied and controlled by the mainland as a real new threat on their southern flank. And so they might want to be much more uh, forward and, uh, and forthright uh, about uh, working with the Taiwanese to defend them at the same time that obviously the United States would be involved too. And so, Richard, earlier you mentioned how Japan's been boosting their military spending and all that, but while trying not to kind of go over that cap, the self-imposed cap. So would that be taken as Japan may be preparing for war? Or how, how would we read into this? Well, I don't think we should uh, overreact to this. I mean, again, with the Japanese, I mean, all these things are glacial baby steps. And uh, simply going over the 1% of GDP by about one point you know, 1% or something like that really isn't a lot. And in fact, it's kind of uh, 
sanctimonious on the part of the Chinese, who generally raise defense spending seven, eight percent every year, to criticize China or Japan rather for those rather modest increases. And I think, in a sense, this is probably more signaling than most things. Uh, because if the Japanese were really keen to uh, greatly add to their defense capabilities, they would probably need to keep in, uh, getting defense spending up until maybe it hit 2%. Uh, and that would really be seen, I think, particularly in terms of uh, naval forces and air forces, which are the um, really important things for them to do. But I would also say that, uh, you know, because the economy is big, even 1% of GDP or 1.3 or something like that would be a pretty significant amount of spending for a country like Japan to put on its military. And Richard, earlier you also mentioned how Japan and you, the U.S. kind of work together. So going forward, what would be some ways maybe the two could work together more? Well, uh, in the first place, uh, missile defense, of course, and they've already uh, been collaborating quite closely in missile defense. And this was actually uh, opened up a whole new um, kind of realm of cooperation because suddenly Japan is more concerned about how they have to deal with a collective defense, a cooperative defense. And I you know, continue to do that. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that um, the U.S. Navy and the Japan Maritime Self-Defense Force, Japan's Navy, uh, already cooperate very closely. In fact, the, uh, the Japanese Navy cooperates much more closely with the U.S. Navy than it does with other forces, other uh, parts of the uh, Japan Self-Defense Force. So that's close. So I think we'll see missile defense. I think we'll see a lot more naval operations. I think you'll find that um, uh, the more important thing is whether or not the United States is able to serve as some type of conduit or catalyst in order to encourage greater military cooperation between Japan and other countries, uh, particularly Australia or India or even, even, God knows, South Korea. I mean, this is the thing that Japan is probably most has to work Towards, towards expanding, and that's this idea of, of going beyond just simple bilateral defense cooperation with the United States and expanding into more multilateral types of cooperation, uh, maybe not to sort of recreate a sort of Pacific or Indo-Pacific NATO, but certainly some type of expanded uh, mutual defense uh, association involving Japan and other Western countries. And I think that's the thing to really be looking at over the next uh, five to 10 years. And Richard, any last words you'd like to add? Well, I guess what I always say about uh, the security in the Indo-Pacific is that nothing happens fast. Uh, the, the, the positive side of thing is that most countries in the region uh, truly want to keep uh, tensions low to keep it an area of stability because it's so mutually beneficial. Um, I think uh, at this point, uh, China believes that they can still make a lot of progress doing this kind of softly, softly approach. Uh, the question is, when do they decide to finally um, do something uh, really drastic, sort of like what Putin did in Ukraine? Hopefully, we never we never reach that uh, in uh in the Pacific, because it would be a lot more difficult to contain 
than uh, we're presently doing in, in Ukraine. Um, so, you know, fingers crossed that uh, we can, uh, you know, that saner and wiser heads prevail. But again, in a place like that, you, you never know. Um, things can change on a, on a, you know, in an instant. Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to have you on the show. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That was Richard Bitzinger, independent international security analyst. And in the first half, we heard from Ross Kennedy, founder of Fortis Analysis. Thanks for watching China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer, and see you soon.